to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Steve. And my co-host, Chris. All right. Well, um, so Morgan is in the middle of getting her full draft of her dissertation done, which is due in the next couple weeks. So we are letting her take a break from the show for this episode. And uh, uh, my uh, brother Steve is joining us. Uh, we're, we're siblings, and we're going to hear to talk about one of our favorite nerd out topics. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. I am glad that you are embracing nepotism on your uh, podcast and uh, <laughs> happy to take advantage of it. <laughs> well, um, in all fairness, uh, Steve and I, I think, have had an enormous amount of effect on our thinking in quite a few areas, especially in in what we're going to talk about today about fuzzy and crisp thinking. Uh, we might be doing more about of these kinds of episodes with Steve and I in the future at some point. Um, basically, Steve and I used to do a thing called uh, nerd outs, and uh, the the topic of today is not only something we talked about a bit, but also highly resembles the very event of having a nerd out we had itself. So yeah, talking about nerd outs and uh, kind of our method of having these, um, it, I guess that was kind of a term for like when Steve and I would meet up. Uh, we were both living in Madison at the time, and we would meet up occasionally, oftentimes to watch videos um, of some sort of technical topic, or sometimes to just go on a walk and chat. But it was always kind of like a deep dive into some sort of um, technical or kind of uh, technically philosophical topic. Do you think that's a reasonable description? Yeah, absolutely. I It was definitely a fun time, I think, uh, in my life, at least. Uh, uh, living close by with you, and uh, we got to uh, walk around uh, in our uh, super uncool ways. We would uh, uh, wander through Madison and take long walks and talk about things that we thought were really important and probably felt completely unimportant to everyone else. That's right. And yeah, it was great. We'd wander into bars and we'd be the only ones ordering soda and we'd find some corner and uh, get into deep, <laughs> uh, almost philosophical conversations. Yeah, um, with... Uh me trying to draw out some sort of uh, like system I wanted to build and Steve just scribbling lambdas furiously on like the opposite <laughs> corners of the napkin. That's right. Aside from walking into bars, you know, we, we had this part where we'd um, sometimes actually just meet up at one of our individual apartments and we'd bring up, one of us would select a video. And I guess we still do this, even though we live separately now, where one of us selects a video or a paper from some conference, and we'll we'll both go through it, and then we'll just kind of talk it through. And I feel like you and I were kind of selecting different things. I mean, I think it started with us, we both started watching uh, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, like the 1980s lectures together. That's right. I think that was the start of it. And then we started... Um, just kind of watching like strange loop videos and some other random lectures and whatever I thought was cool and lispy. And, and you kind of strayed in a different direction, though it was also very related, I think. Yeah, I was attracted to lisp as well. Um, I um, was a, a Pascal developer at the time. Um, I guess a, a fun story was uh, when I did my interview process, I thought I was being hired for... Um, a C++ job, and um, they asked me 
like what editor I programmed in. And I told them that I think I programmed in Eclipse or something at the time. And they're like, oh, yeah, we program in Delphi. And so I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds good. So I, I took the job, and the next day I was looking furiously around the code base for any C or C++ that th I thought they had uh, they had in their code base, and there was nothing. So I spent um, a good amount of time trying to figure out why I thought Haskell was uh, difficult to work with in a few different areas, and uh, it sent me down a rabbit hole of languages. Yeah, and and actually, another funny thing is that you know when when Steve and I were growing up, we were very close as in terms of like you know the different games we would play together and and so on and so forth. But then like we had this kind of period where we didn't talk that much um, until when I moved to Madison and you were just graduating from college in Madison, and like I knew that you were studying computer programming in school, but we hadn't talked about it at all. I think up until we started doing these nerd outs. Is that is that kind of match your memory? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it was a really uh, a really fun way to kind of reconnect with things that we were both passionate about. Uh, yeah, programming languages and board games, but the board games one will come in a different episode. <laughs> yes. So, so maybe when you know, even starting out with learning Lisp and watching SICP and stuff like that, I think we kind of liked different things about the stuff we were exploring. Like, so me, I've always kind of had these long-term visions of the stuff I want to build. Like, you know, distributed virtual worlds kind of being the end goal of the stuff that I want to do. You know, have a system for and then actually build stuff on top of. And so, you know, I'm I'm interested in what makes that really possible, right? And what makes it fun and easy for me to play around with things. Mm -hmm. And I always really enjoyed how hackable Lisp was, how I could kind of make it kind of fit whatever problem I wanted, basically, and how how much it encouraged experimenting kind of live by playing around in what's called the REPL. And like, even sometimes you'd have a game and you'd be able to actually just change the behavior of, you know, characters running around the screen and stuff like that while the game was running. And sometimes it would create horrible errors and stuff like that by doing so. But, you know, some of these systems were designed so that you could recover and kind of mess with it live. And, and that seemed really exciting to me, but I think that was not what was appealing to you. Is that right? Right. Uh, I guess in in Lisp and some of the videos what I was watching, I was looking for kind of these pure uh, abstract concepts. And I was trying to understand, I guess, the world around me. It wasn't really a desire to go out and create anything, though um, that certainly helps me down the line. And that's how I end up using it. Uh, but for me, it was really just that drive to understand uh, what's possible. And and I think I think I and this is a, t a tie in with uh, whatever future episode we do about board games. But I think you always are really interested in how can you reduce something to a very small and clear rule set. Is that is that a pretty good description of the the Steve uh, aspirations? <laughs> yeah, I I think that functional minimalism, uh, if you will, um, is partly uh, attractive to. to uh, to me, maybe just because I just don't have the best memory about things. And so if I can condense a concept in down to its just really fundamental roots, it lets me kind of reason about the world and extrapolate from those very small core concepts. So it's just kind of a 
uh, a constant practice for me to try and understand, like, what is at the core of this? And how does this apply to uh, other other fields and other areas of my life? Yeah, I, I remember both at the end of, we both went through the little schemer and also watched the talk, the most beautiful program ever written by William Byrd, which we'll link that one in the show notes. But, um, and like in both of those systems at the end of, you know, little schemer and also in that talk by William Byrd very directly, um, they show off building a lisp inside of a lisp, which, you know, is one of the kind of the big deal things about lisp is that like way back in the day, this was included in like the first major published Lisp manual. It was just like a side note, like, oh yeah, and here's how you write Lisp and Lisp, right? No big deal, right? And like that mm-hmm. ended up kind of inspiring every language since. And like, I think when you and I went through this, if we were both like, oh, this is really cool. And then I was like, it's really great. And and then you were like, yeah, but I hate this cons thing. Like, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, why can't I just use lambdas? Why is Lisp built on Lisp? <laughs> Yeah, so like at the at the very heart of Lisp is this very tiny kernel, which I'm entranced with. Uh, you've mentioned it before on your podcast, the Lambda Calculus, and we won't go deep into it. But um, to me, I saw Lisp as this thing that's showing how beautiful that this concept is, but it it hasn't been fully distilled down to kind of its purest and most abstract form, and. Um, I have definitely followed that rabbit hole uh, pretty far. Right. So you're like, oh, like, you know, beautiful. How much can we do with just lambdas? Which, you know, it turns out like pretty much everything. And I'm, I'm, (laughs) so you're like, the lambda calculus is so great. And then I'm like, cool, like quasi quote. And you're like, what the heck? Quasi quote, which is like this weird feature that like definitely feels like a major deviation from like the, incredible level of beauty at least from the lambda perspective maybe if you're really into like the linked list perspective it makes it's more acceptable but i think even there Mm -hmm. you were just like uncomfortable but i'm like it's fine right like look at these things i can build using this thing right right you don't need the most minimalistic core to be productive with something right javascript the good parts was uh, a wonderful example of this you have a book of 20 pages or so, which is what's actually good about JavaScript. And people can be incredibly productive with those 20 pages and just ignore everything else. That's fine. But for me, I love it when uh, languages cannot express things that you don't want to do. Um, (laughs) So I'm always looking for that wonderful uh, functional core. Right. Yeah. So So I think... One of the funny things is, is that like Steve and I will go to family functions and like we'll get comments from other family members like, well, Chris and Steve, like they're like practically the same. And we're like, what? We could not be more different. What are you talking about? Like, well, we don't say it like that. Right. But like, it just seems weird right. to you and me. And I, and for a while there, like, and, and I kind of have come to understand that this is kind of related to that whole phrase, like the narcissism of small differences, like the closer you are to somebody in some senses, like the more the differences that you have seem severe. But I also think that it's also as in terms of you and I end up converging on a lot of the same points eventually, but we're coming from different directions. Yeah. So for me, I'm thinking like, what's the story? What's the thing that I want to be able to build? What's required to get there? And for you, I think it's, it's, it's basically what you expressed, right? So like, well, in your own words, what what would the Steve version be? Uh, 
I mean, is all about trying to find uh, that minimalistic abstract concept that you can ap apply uh, to other areas. And um, uh, I guess that makes you productive um, and lets me make sense of the world. Right. So um, I remember a version of this where Steve and I um, were chatting over um, whatever instant messenger system we were using at the time. And Steve, Steve sends me a web page out of the blue and he and and was it was just like full of and Steve's like, look at this. It's like, look at all these birds. And I'm like, what? And like I could not understand. Like, these don't look like birds to me. These just look like a bunch of lambdas everywhere. And I couldn't understand it. So do you want to give some context as to what all these birds were that you were sending me? Oh man. So these are basically all minimalistic uh functions that you can append together to each other and essentially do very similar things uh, to the lambda calculus. But with just a, this very uh, concise atrium, you're able to express this giant wealth of context. And um, speaking about context, as I often do, I gave you no context as to what I was actually handing you. And it wasn't until... Yeah. What, it had to have been months later when you're like, oh, I read this cool... Uh, to mock a mockingbird book and like it was fascinating i'm like yeah those are the birds i sent you and you're like oh that, yeah <laughs> i would <laughs> never be, have gotten that to, to be fair i never i never actually made it all the way through the book i made it like two examples into the book but yeah the, there's this book called to mock a mockingbird and it's a logic puzzle book and um the the page that steve sent me extracted all the mathy ideas from it and just stripped out all of the story, right? Like all the narrative. And it was just like, here's here's the math. Yeah. So I mean, I guess the, the question is like, you know, are are we so different? Like, is this are these really two extremely different and opposing approaches? Like, uh, you know, are are we dueling about duels, or is this actually duels about duels? Uh, that that hurts my brain. Uh... <laughs> We, we might actually want me to expand and define what duels have, means Have we here. even explained what duels? Yeah. No. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I think a topic, the topic we want to cover today is about uh, fuzzy and crisp concepts, and it's one of the major ways I think uh, Chris and I differ in uh, how we think about things. But fundamentally, what a duel is is when you have a, a symmetry between two opposite sides, two sides of the same coin. Um, and I think we often fall on opposite sides of those coins, but we converge at some point and we say, hey, we're talking about the same thing. Um, and both viewpoints are really important. Yeah. Um, famously, the computer science textbook, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, has on its cover... Um, like a wizard with like a yin yang style symbol, and one of the sides is eval, and the other side is apply, because these two things kind of keep calling each other. Although you and I have had debates about whether or not these are very good duels, but yeah, uh, but, I won't, I won't go into that. <laughs> but but the but the point there is is that these things kind of show up all over the place, right? You have these two things that do very different things, and and it feels like they never touch, and they're kind of separate but they are at the same time intertwined, even despite the fact right. that they're separate, right? Like, is that is that a good explanation? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you can't escape one uh, without the other. 
And I think when we get into Fuzzy and Chris uh, definitions and examples, that'll become clear that you can't really have one without the other. So my memory of how we came up with the phrase fuzzy and crisp was actually that like we were talking about fudgy, fuzzy logic and we were kept talking about like there are these different terms for these but like we kept having difficulty discussing like whether or not like where we would categorize things like dynamic programming versus static programming you know like contracts versus like you know blah 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 like all of these types of things and so we we were like inspired by fuzzy logic you know called one category fuzzy and then, like, what's the opposite of fuzzy? It's obviously crisp, right? And then I think I sure. didn't know that there is, like, this is actually, like, some sort of, you just sent me an article, and I didn't even know until we were preparing for this call, that there's actually some sort of, um, at, at least somebody has defined differences between fuzzy sets and crisp sets or something like that. So do you want to explain what fuzzy and crisp are from from kind of their definition? Sure. And I don't know how uh, widely used... Um the crisp definition is, but at least in this article, um, and I think it's very useful how they presented it, um, there's kind of two sets of fuzziness, uh, ways of thinking about fuzziness. Uh, one is it may be ambiguous whether something is part of a set or not. Um, does an element uh, exist in the set? So for example, uh, is this thing a bear or is it, I don't know, is it a mammal? It can be very unclear. Where crisp set, you have kind of a very stringent, what's the word, is it a dichotomy? Where everything is classified in one of these sets. But often, especially with language, it can be very unclear where something lies. Um, And that would be considered a fuzzy set. Sure. So we, we might be able to get very crisp about something. So like, for example, real numbers, right? Like our definition of real numbers um, versus like imaginary numbers might be a pretty crisp distinction or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, although <laughs> that's kind of funny with real and imaginary. But, uh, um, but you know, like also like even an odd, right? Like those are very, even an odd integers, that's a very easy thing to categorize, I feel like, uh, unless mm-hmm. you get to zero and then you get really confused i guess sometimes but uh um but but uh we won't talk about zero but in in general you have a pretty good sense of like where where to put these things so 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 categorizing is one thing um like how how do we categorize things and then the other thing is i think kind of how do we build things right so this is where i think the there's another set of terms that are used in ai systems um which are called neats and scruffies And, and there's a wikipedia page that's pretty good it's like got a pretty good definition actually do you want to should i uh volunteer you to to read the uh the the first sentence at the um or maybe first and second at the top of the neats and scruffy's wikipedia page sure so neat and scruffy are labels for two different types of artificial intelligence research neats consider that solutions should be elegant clear and provably correct and scruffies believe that intelligence is too complicated or computationally intractable to be solved with the sorts of homogeneous systems such neat requirements usually mandate. I actually feel like there are a lot of big words in there. I like to think of it, uh, the scruffies are the the people who are hacking away furiously to get something uh, to work. Gotta get this thing done. We gotta get it out the door. <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. And they're very pragmatic. And the neats are trying, they're just reaching for that perfect solution, which will always categorize something correctly or always uh, give a perfect understanding as uh, to the point that is actually possible. But often it takes a lot longer for them to uh, implement their solutions. Yeah, like we can see that like right now, the kind of dominant form of AI that's really popular has like, it's kind of shifted back and forth. Like, I mean, the term AI is really strange, but like right now, like the the popularity of these kind of black box machine learning models, definitely I feel like is in the scruffy category, right? It's like this kind of like, mm, you know, it's 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 not very clean. Like you don't really know what's going on there, but it's it seems to be getting the job done, right? And which is it, right. it's kind of ironic given how much I hate contemporary machine learning and neural network systems that <laughs> <laughs> that's coming up. But I mean, and you can even look at those systems from a very neat approach, right? Like if you're looking at how they're organized mm-hmm. from like how do we construct neural networks as like a theory and as in terms of implementing the underlying infrastructure you can do that in a very neat way but the things you actually (laughs) that get built using it those end up in the very scruffy kind of horror of like we have no idea what the heck this thing is type territory do you think that's pretty good yeah absolutely like the heuristics that you are choosing to use to evaluate the weights in your neural network or the number of levels or number of nodes in your neural network is all very much a black art, at least right now. Though, like you say, there is this kind of neat interpretation where you can see I have exactly this many nodes and they always point in a defined manner from one to another. There is also that neat perspective, though I agree the pendulum has shifted towards scruffy. Yeah, so we kind of talked about this from the perspective of categorizing things, and then from the perspective of building things, and then from the perspective of kind of personalities. Alan Watts has this lecture that he gave, and I kind of kind of up and down on Alan Watts, depending on whatever he's talking about. But um, he has this this kind of funny lecture uh, um, about prickles and goo, and it's basically the same thing, right? Like the prickles are basically like neats as like people, um, and the scruffies <laughs> are like you know, scruffies as people, basically, as instead of just approaches for building things. Right. Yeah, whenever I see the uh, concept, even if it has different language represented so many different times, I get really excited because it, it feels like there's something fundamental there if enough people have come up with it independently. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a... Uh, um... It's a sign that something's on the right track, right? You've this crab has evolved into crab shape multiple times. It, there must there must be something good about crabs, or, or something horrifying, right. or both, right? You know. Okay, so we've been talking about kind of you know the abstract, haha, categorization of you know these kind of fuzzy and crisp perspectives, um, and so like let's let's talk about some actual places where you see this in practice. So um, since we've already talked about Lisp. I feel like one that comes to mind for me is this old um, kind of uh, almost legendary phrase about um, uh, Lisp versus APL as two different languages. And uh, there was this programmer, Joel Moses, who um, is kind of claimed to have this quote, although it's not quite clear that he actually said that. He's kind of disputed it himself. But he uh, the quote is really good, so I'm just going to read it out loud. APL is like a diamond. It is a beautiful crystal structure, 
All of its parts are related in a uniform and elegant way, but if you try to extend this structure in any way, even by adding another diamond, you get an ugly kludge. Lisp, on the other hand, is like a ball of mud. You can add any amount of mud to it, and it still looks like a ball of mud. So like that's the APL versus Lisp as like diamonds versus mud type thing. And like that kind of appeals to me, you know, Lisp gets kind of, you know, attacked for like, oh, it's ugly. You've just got these parentheses everywhere. It doesn't really look like anything. And for me, I'm like, you know, the irony is, is that I feel like Lisp appeals to me in kind of a crisp way as in terms of having this very specific syntax, but for what it enables from like a, a fuzzy type of use, right? Where I can just kind of smush mm -hmm. in whatever paradigm I want. Does Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I I agree with it. There are other times when I love how he described it as having, having that crystalline structure. With some of these crisp concepts, you can extend them, but only if you follow the grain of that crystal and it really restrains you in what direction you can go, which can be very useful, but can also feel very prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good description of both feeling useful and being prohibitive. And and you expressed already earlier in this this episode that you get sometimes excited when these kind of systems constrain people, right? Because that might <laughs> lead them down a useful path, I, I think is kind of how you think about it sometimes. Is that a, relatively appropriate? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. If there is, if you have a language and uh, something is inexpressible, that means that is one foot gun that you have just avoided. So it can be very useful and it's also um, less to think about, right? If you do not have the ability to express a particular concept, you have no need to worry about it and to be concerned uh, with it. So uh, it can be very useful, but yeah, it can stay in the way, stand in the way of innovation. Okay, um, do we have any other examples in the Lisp category before we wanna move on? Yeah, so I think Geeks is a really interesting case study because we've talked about these as kind of two very different things. And this is something, uh, a, a tool you've shown me, it's a functional package manager. And it's kind of the glue that can marry the scruffy world and the neat world or the fuzzy world and the crisp world. And I think this can be done. So Geeks allows us to take a software development, which is very messy and fuzzy in terms of the definition of what a program actually is. And it lets the user compose those in a very crisp manner where you can say, oh, this one has this fuzzy dependency and this fuzzy dependency. And just a shout out to the community. It's uh, immensely useful and a way of making sense of all the fuzziness right so because you might need this package might depend on python and you might from like the, the the module you're writing kind of leave it open to whatever version of python happens to have that name of python at the moment um, but you can be much more specific and if python kind of moves if the developer is updated in one place it can kind of propagate out elsewhere basically but you also just by the fact that you updated the variable, right? But if you come, if it changes, you have a way of referring, I guess, very specifically to, well, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to say maybe we should back up and we should actually talk about 
how this works in practice, right? So I'm going to give an example as in terms of what I want as in terms of kind of the story, and then maybe you can explain how Geeks achieves it, right? So sure. what I want is I never want to be afraid of upgrading my system again, right? So if I, <laughs> if I do a system upgrade and something goes bad in the middle, I just, I just want it to be as if that upgrade never happened. Or if I do, if I complete the upgrade and I say, mm, actually, things were better a little bit ago, or, ooh, I really liked how the way that this package worked a few months ago, or it even didn't have a specific bug, I want a way to be able to get back to that state. Um, so it's kind of like Git for my whole operating system. So how, how does it achieve that like level of like Gitness for my whole operating system? Sure. So... Um... Like Git, uh, you can take a hash of a particular version of a uh, program like Python, like you mentioned. And so you've got you've got this fuzzy concept, Python. What is Python? There are so many different versions of it. And you kind of take a snapshot of it. And you say, this is the hash that refers to the snapshot. This is its crisp identity. And then you can upgrade Python to another version, a different crisp definition of that Python, and they can live side by side in your file system. And if something goes wrong with your new version of uh, Python, no biggie. You just revert back to your previous version of Python, just like Git. And what's incredible, I think, about Geeks is that you can do that not just on a program by program level, but you can do that across your entire operating system. So the ability, if you upgrade your system, and maybe you're upgrading tons of programs that interop interoperate with each other, and something goes wrong, no biggie, you just roll right on back, and your system isn't hasn't been harmed at all by the mutation of that upgrade. Right. I can even make a crisp definition of a system I'd like to build and move over to another server locally on my laptop, even compile the entire server and then basically copy over the structure of the server to that other machine and update it, you know, right, right from one place, which I think is like incredible, right? Like that I can be that specific and crisp about it. That's right. Yeah. So, so here's, here's one other interesting way in which it's, um, I guess, moving to the previous list versus APL is mud and diamonds. Another way in which this kind of plays out is that I would like to be able to, um, it, there's a lot of cool things you can do in Geeks as in terms of every single layer of it is programmable. Like you're just, no matter what I'm doing, I can, I'm just writing scheme, right? Like if I'm describing, if I'm writing a package, I'm just mm -hmm. writing scheme that produces that package. If I'm writing a, an operating system, I'm just writing scheme that uses, um, that refers to those packages and other, describes other things. If I want to do, and this has allowed geeks to be very fast about adding new features, like adding the ability to describe a, a system and, well, yeah, we could install it on our system, but we could also use that to build something that we boot into a, v a virtual machine or something like that. Like, no problem, right? Like, we're now we'll just write some Lisp code that treats that as, like, first-class data in the programming language. So, like, that feels like a very useful way to go, but it's like both kind of crisp and fuzzy in the way that it achieves it. And I feel like in the very reason that it's kind of mud and diamond-like of Lisp itself. Do you, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great summary. I, I think it, it might be useful to move um, from kind of this, uh, this programming and technical uh, view of fuzzy and crisp uh, to something maybe that's really familiar uh, to all of us, which is language and how we communicate with each other. 
And so let's take English, for example, as a language. If you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with it. And I think most people would agree that English is generally a pretty fuzzy language. It's easy to uh, make sentences that are ambiguous, but with context and the ability for people to generally hold internal models, we can understand each other despite all that fuzziness. Yeah, I've had a conversation with my um, so I'm going to name drop here uh, my friend Jonathan Reese, uh, uh, who 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 said, but I want to attribute this this observation, which I think is really useful, which is that all communication is always some level of a reverse engineering effort of both sides mm-hmm. trying to see whether or not they understand the other side, and English is kind of like that to its extreme. Like we're just embracing that. You know, language is a reverse engineering language. So here's a language that can be smushed into doing just about everything, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. Like you try to piece apart what English is and it just seems really goofy. Yeah, that's right. Um, On the other extreme, of course, you have programming languages uh, which fall much on the CRISPR side. So you have um, with uh, English, the person on either side of the equation can vary quite a bit. Uh, with programming languages, generally you're running the same interpreter um, on either side. Um, so you get much more crisp definitions uh, where you can kind of reproduce the results of running a program to a, a fairly high degree. Right. Now, of course, this can vary. Um, programming language authors try to be very careful about which semantics they change or introduce usually by being kind of like append only like you know we're not we're not going to reuse the same thing and have it mean something different but at least if a programming language is going to add a new idea um we want to in case two programmers on opposite sides of the divide are using two different variations of this programming language we would rather that it, it fail because it doesn't know about the new thing than possibly ambiguously interpret something that both sides kind of know that's right It's interesting, I think, when people have tried to apply some of this crisp rigor to fuzzy languages in the form of Lajban. With some success, you have uh, something that is syntactically uh, very consistent. But uh, Chris, do you want to cover some of the semantic ambiguity there? (laughs) Yeah, so Lojban is awesome. It's the like the um, or Lojban. I, I always forget how you pronounce it, but it, oh, it's Lojban because the O is like O noise in in, Lo, in Lojban itself. Uh, the uh, yeah. um, even though it uses logical, so that's like a, a slightly illogical um, kind of divergent, but you know, <laughs> it, yeah, very logical at the same time. Uh, but that I'm getting off track. Uh, Lojban, as you said, it's it, it actually is so precise that even though it's a natural language that two people can speak it actually compiles down into what's called predicate logic, right? Which is like a very, very crisp idea, right? You've got, it's, Lojban is so specific that Emacs has a Lojban mode. It, it basically syntax colors the, the sentences as you're typing them and stuff like that. It <laughs> uh, does like error checking. And like, that's amazing. But the thing is, is that, yeah, as you said, from the semantics, like, sure, you and I can get the same structure of the sentences, but do we mean the same thing? And my favorite example of um, where even if you do your best to create the same syntax structure is the Bergu page on the Lojban wiki, which is basically two people <laughs> arguing about whether or not 
whether or not they can get perfect meaning and understanding between each other. Because you could, in theory, run a loge band thing inside of a, a logic programming language like Prolog and be like, oh, these statements are true or false based off of all of the descriptions that we we have of these things. But do like both sides really understand each other in terms of their meaning? And this bear goo page is like, well, you know, what's a bear? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, what about when a bear becomes bear goo? Like you shoot an arrow at a, a at a bear's head and it goes through, you know, sorry, there's a little bit violent, but you know, it goes through its skull and it, it, it theoretically <laughs> dies. And it goes between some state of being a bear and not a bear, right? And eventually it decomposes into some sort of bear goo. When does that happen? Mm-hmm. You and I might look at the bear corpse on the ground we're like it's so sad you know that bear you know that's a dead bear right well is it a bear right and when when did we even get bears right like at some point we move between a pre-state of bears evolution wise assuming you don't believe in intelligent design and you believe in evolution there's some sort of state where we were at pre-bears and then something just happened to become a bear and like it's kind of weird because it's like the debate is did the universe come pre-baked with the concept of bears or is like a bear something that we've kind of we've developed enough amount of understanding between the bunch of us of what a bear is. Right. And there are so many philosophical experiments uh, or thought experiments along this line. Like, um, am I the same person as five minutes ago? I mean, I'm like shedding skin constantly my memories and my thoughts are changing and there's all sorts of thought experiments. I won't cover all of them, but this concept of identity, we want to have this sort of fuzzy concept of identity of I persist throughout time and relate these two entities to each other. Uh, But from a strictly crisp uh, perspective, you might say that these are two very different people, right? Uh, people often say I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago and by some measure they are correct. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right there. And so so things changing is one thing and even categorizing things is really challenging, right? So like fuzzy typists <laughs> like to use the <laughs> when is a person bald example, right? How many hairs on their head? And I remember you and I had this debate at one point and you just, yeah. I think you laughed and I don't know if you remember what you said or if I should say it for you. Oh, I don't recall. You can embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> you said, well, the answer is obvious. If they have zero hairs on their head, then they're bald. <laughs> if they have any more hairs, and you weren't being serious, it's so clear. <laughs> you were you were being serious, but you're but it was it was like yeah, like you know, there's you know, and how deep do you go if you've got inactive hair follicles? Like how inactive do they need to be? Like you know, it's it's really so so yeah. You could you could be that clear, but I think you might have zero members of the set in that case in terms of humanity, right? That's right. That's not very useful set at all. Right. So, okay. So bears might not really crisply exist and baldness might not even crisply exist, but are these like useful concepts? Is there any way that we can see that we still might want to communicate about things and actually get useful work done, even if we're not completely, even if we don't have a completely precise paradigm Either it doesn't exist or we just haven't understood it yet? Right. So I I would argue that 
um, these models are still very useful. And I guess I want you to think back to your like fifth grade science class, and maybe you were you were rolling cars down ramps, and you were trying to see how far they would go and calculate friction. Well, you could you probably got pretty close, but um, if you were uh, calculating for air drag, maybe you would do a little bit better. But that probably wasn't important for you. And not just air drag, were you accounting for the general space-time curvature? Right. Probably not. <laughs> like, I don't care. At some, at, at some granularity, I can have what is a crisp model, but it can be incomplete. And it can just be good enough, and it can make me productive. That's right. That's interesting, because like you're embracing the crispness and it's failure from a pers- fuzzy perspective in kind of a fuzzy Correct. way. You're like, I'm fuzzily deciding that this is good enough of a crisp system for my use cases right now. Yes. So bear, I think I, bears are good enough for the moment, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe that can help drive home why I think we both think that fuzziness and crispness are kind of both inseparable. Um, you need both. And they are both useful. So, okay. So I, I, I agree with you. Um, we can get a lot done when we don't fully understand a system, when we decide that um, it's kind of good enough, um, you know, and we, we can kind of meet in the middle. You and I can be satisfied enough for the moment to be able to make progress, right? Even if right. there's no crisp definition of a bear, it's still useful for me to say, oh my God, Steve, there's a bear charging at us like we have to run for our lives and you know like if you're like and then okay. i just say i need to run faster <laughs> right yeah <clears throat> that's well just... actually that as as a crisp person the thing I'd, I'd i'd be afraid that you might say is well hold on categorically we need to carefully define a bear before we can take action right that's right how do i know what i'm running away from like <laughs> is it actually harmful like is this a polar bear, a koala bear, like <laughs> what? And then yep. someone's going to yell at me by saying those aren't bears, but you know what I mean. Yep, yep. Well, and you know, so and that's the point at which you know you're the the person who survives. You you don't have to outrun the bear, just outrun your fastest friend. Well, Steve, I'm I, I hope we never end up in a situation like that in reality. He'd <laughs> <laughs> probably outrun me anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> don't know about that, but yeah, but, I agree. <laughs> so I, I feel like this was pretty good. I think we kind of gave, um, hopefully we gave our listeners some fun stuff to think about and uh, maybe gave a pretty good introduction to what uh, a, a Chris and Steve nerd out is like. So um, I, I'd be interested to know, did uh, people listening to this episode, did you enjoy it? Do you have things that you thought went pretty well or things that could go better? Like what, would you be interested in more episodes like this? I mean, we're probably going to do some anyway, but uh, <laughs> but but we're, we it, feedback is good so that we can you know adjust our systems as we go. Um, so uh, in the meanwhile, I'm already taking a beautiful crisp ending and and smudging the edges of it. So maybe we should wrap up. <laughs> so, Steve, it was great having you on the show. Thank oh, you yeah, for showing this up. This was great. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. All right, and uh, um, I guess. All we have to end with then is bye, everybody. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International 
license. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. I mean, the fu- the the fu- functional programming and time thing is maybe an interesting thing to bring up again, and the godling somebody is kind of interesting. But maybe it's maybe we did good enough of a job, and we should end while it's like at a good <laughs> crisp ending.